0: Turn with me to the book of Haggai, please. If you're visiting this morning, you probably noticed, man, we do a lot of praying. Every Sunday feels like a prayer service. And I I think that that's good, and I I hope it communicates something to you about the kind of people that we are. We're people who are desperate, desperate for God to move and to act in our lives. A people who are not sufficient in and of ourselves. And in light of that, we turn to God's Word, because the thing that ultimately gives us life as Christians trying to live in this fallen world is His Word. This morning, the Word that we will be studying is Haggai chapter 2, and we'll be beginning our reading in verse 10. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. And I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is God's holy inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. And Father, we pray that you would indeed bless us this morning with a more of an understanding of all that you have for us in your word. Amen. Bella looked a little more tired than usual when she came inside from playing several months ago. She sat down for dinner, but she didn't eat much. We didn't really think much of it because Bella doesn't usually eat much. After dinner, we found Bella laying down on the couch, very unlike her. She was asleep. We couldn't really wake her up. At 2 in the morning, her mother and I had the pleasure of being woken up, and all the parents in the room nod, yes, to the sound of her throw-up hitting the floor in the hallway outside of our room. The next day, Bella crawled up in her mom's lap, and she snuggled, and she kept kind of pathetically saying, "My my tummy hurts. And then it happened. She threw up all over her mom. All the moms shake their head, yes, been there, done that. As you can imagine, Amber was sick a couple of days after that, and then patients, and then me. Bella was patient zero in the DeMar's household. As I was laid out sick, I like to think I was dying, I spent some time brushing up on the prevention of spreading germs, you know, sitting there sick and trying to keep my eyes open and Googling. And I came to really find out that there's no way to stop the spread of germs in a household with sick people, right? I mean... Research has shown that a child can throw up on one end of the house and within a couple of hours, if the kid never even goes to the other end of the house, the germs are all over there. There's just no way to stop it. Even if the kid makes it to the toilet every time, the toilet, when it flushes, it acts like a mister shooting this bacteria out into the air for you to breathe and for you to touch later when it lands on surfaces in the home. Sickness is really, really contagious. A sick person can cough, sneeze, or just breathe in the same room with healthy people and get them sick. Unfortunately, the inverse of this is not true. Health is not contagious. A healthy person cannot walk into a room full of sick people, like a hospital ward, and just go sneeze in everybody's face and then get them healthy. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Apparently, this same principle was true when it came to ritual uncleanliness and spiritual defilement. In this morning's text, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet Haggai for the third time. There are four prophecies in the book of Haggai. We're on the third prophecy, and it comes some three months since the beginning of the rebuilding of the temple. And this prophecy that Haggai brings, it, it begins with a question. And we see that question in verse 11. Haggai asked the priest in verse 11, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Uh, It was not uncommon in the days of the Israelites for priests to take certain consecrated items, items that... Holy is a word that we kind of fluff up, but all it really means is to be set aside for some specific special purpose. So if a priest had something that had become holy, like a piece of meat, they would carry it in the fold of their garment. And so what Haggai is asking is, hey, if this holy thing goes into the fold of your garment, your, your garment becomes holy, right? Okay, but then what if you take your garment and touch something else with it? Would that thing then by indirect contact become holy? And the answer that he receives is an obvious no. Maybe obvious to the priests, not so obvious to us. Okay, says Haggai, well, I've got another question for you. In verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And now the question is this. If I touch a dead body, I become unclean. And then if I, as an unclean person, go and touch anything else, does that thing that I touch become unclean? And the answer to that is yes. So while it appears that holiness cannot be spread by indirect contact, defilement can be. Everybody tracking? Okay, but what does it all mean? Why does God want Haggai to ask the priests these things? Why this series of questions? Well, the answer comes in verse 14. In verse 14, it says, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. This whole thing about holiness and cleanliness, it's an illustration given to Haggai by God. Now, remember, an illustration is something where we kind of tap into imagery that's familiar to us, imagery that's easy for us to grasp. Like if I were to use a sermon illustration about Alabama football, everyone would be like, okay, I'm tracking with you, not me, maybe not Russell, but you, you pull from familiar imagery in order to communicate something that's hard to understand. Well, here in today's text, we're not priests, so the imagery that is used in this illustration may seem somewhat foreign to us, but it wasn't foreign to the priests. So, we still don't really understand exactly what's going on here because we still have a few more questions to ask. Questions like, what was it that was making the Israelites unclean? In verse 14, Haggai specifically says, so it is with you, you are unclean. Okay, well, what was making the Israelites unclean? Well, quite simply i think it's the temple i think the temple is like a bloated corpse sitting in their midst they got started on it but they never finished and now it is sitting there like a festering wound this makes sense when you consider the whole context of the book of haggai right the book of haggai is all about the unfinished temple the people of god came back into the land into the land they got to work rebuilding the temple They got to work rebuilding their lives, but their lives kind of took precedence and they spent more time on their own houses than on the Lord's house and they began to forget about the temple and pretty soon it was laying there like a bloated corpse. Now, if you remember, under the old covenant law, touching a corpse would make you unclean. It would make you defiled. Okay? And so, if your great-grandma Ruth passed away in the middle of the night and you had to get her out of the house and go get her buried, when you touched her to move her from the bed and put her in the blanket to carry her out, you would then be unclean. And then as an unclean person, anything that you might touch in your home or along the way would also become unclean. And so God is saying that all of the people of Israel were unclean before Him because as they were going around living their lives, walking through Jerusalem, they were constantly coming into contact, contact with a corpse, with this unfinished temple. And it was making them unclean. Now the second thing we still have to figure out, if we want to really understand what Haggai is saying here, is what is it that the Israelites, after they've been made unclean by this corpse of a temple, what, is the, what are the things that they're touching and defiling as they go about their lives? Well, I think you see the answer in verses 16 and 17. When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What became unclean? All the things that they touched. All the work of toil that they set their hands to in the vineyards, wherever it may be, God was cursing it. And here, he's referring to everything back in chapter 1. God said, listen, I was trying to wake you up. I was trying to snap you out of your spiritual slumber. So I I cursed all the work of your hands, hoping that you would realize that something isn't right here in our relationship. And here in this prophecy, in chapter 2, God is reminding them of that. He's saying, yeah, you were unclean, and so I cursed All the work of your hands, making all of them unclean. You wanted wine, but when you set your hand to the vineyards, I struck it with mildew to let you know just how unclean you were. You wanted barley, I went out to the fields and destroyed your barley to let you know how unclean you were. I defiled the work of your hands to show you how unclean your hands were. Now, believe it or not, this morning's text is not a rebuke to the Israelites, This morning's text comes at a point in the book of Haggai after the Israelites have already turned from their sin, after they've already begun to walk in obedience. And so this whole thought experiment here, this series of questions, is a setup for what God is about to introduce to His people, which is another encouragement and one final call to examination. God wants his people to do three things this morning, and those will be the three points of the sermon. Point number one, he wants his people to be hopeful for the future. God wants his people to be hopeful for the future. Point number two, God wants his people to consider the present. Consider the present. And finally, point number three, God wants his people to remember the past. Remember the past. Point number one, be hopeful for the future. As I just said, this prophecy comes to the people after they've already repented of their lackadaisical attitude towards God and the temple. And in light of their obedience, God's people have hit a turning point. Things are about to go from bad to good, from cursed to blessed. And God describes it like this in verse 19. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate tree, and the olive tree were cursed and gave you nothing. But from this day forward, I will bless you. God is promising His people that He is about to relent from His hand of discipline. And He is about to bless the work of their hands. And He intends that to give hope to his people for the future. God is not going to keep disciplining his children after they've repented. He's going to relent from his discipline and then give them blessings and encouragement. Parents, think about your own life with your children. Isn't that the way that you interact with them? When they walk in disobedience, you discipline them, however may be appropriate for the situation. But then when you begin to see a positive response that seems to be indicative of real heart change, you start to see behavior adjustment and heart disposition moving in the right direction. You pull back from your discipline. You relent from your discipline. And then you increase the encouragement, the love, and the affection. Even in church discipline, our goal is not to crush the members of the church who may be walking in disobedience or who may be living in sin. The goal is to bring them to repentance. And if we bring a member of the church under discipline and they do repent, we won't just continue to discipline them, continue to act as if they're under the discipline of God. Rather, we will begin to encourage them and love them and pour more blessings on them. Paul, when he was speaking about a member who was disciplined in the church at Corinth, writes this. Apparently, this member was repentant. So, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In the same way, God doesn't want His people to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow as, as they suffer the hand of discipline. Rather, He wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to know that He is reaffirming their love for them as they walk in obedience. He wants them to be encouraged about the future. But before that, He calls them to consider the present, which brings us to point number two. At the very beginning of verse 19, God asks, and this is important, Is the seed yet in the barn? Is the seed yet in the barn? This prophecy comes in the ninth month, which for our calendar would be about December. Okay? And this was the time of seed sowing in the ancient Near East. So in all likelihood, this prophecy comes to the people as they're sowing seed or shortly after they have begun to sow seed or maybe even after they've finished it. And this is God saying, "Hey, although I've promised to bless you, remember as you sow these seeds or as you wait for this crop, there's still a long time until the harvest." In other words, God is saying, "Do not presume upon my blessings. Don't assume that because you've begun to walk in obedience that I'm obligated to bless you." God is telling his people, there's plenty of time for me to corrupt the soil, to send locusts on the barley, to send mildew on the vines. Don't get spiritually complacent. Don't let off the gas. This is such a wise thing for God to say to his people because this is exactly how we are, isn't it? Diet seems to be going well. Five days. Down seven pounds, might as well have some ice cream. Been doing a good job sticking to my budget. Financially, I'm really beginning to reap the rewards of my discipline and my stewardship, which we'll be talking more about next Sunday, 9.15, Pairs and Spares Room. I'm really beginning to reap the benefits of financial discipline, and then all of a sudden it's, it's time to treat yourself, Right? I've earned it. We've earned it. Look how well we've done this month. Spiritually, we strive to fight sin, to pursue holiness, to strengthen our walk with the Lord. And then we begin to see the fruits of that on our job, in our family, in the life of the church. And then we get comfortable and we begin to presume upon God's blessing. We stop praying as much We stop reading our Bibles. We begin to show up every third Sunday. God told the Israelites not to grow complacent and to not count their blessings too soon. And brothers and sisters, He is telling us the exact same thing. Unless you are currently a resident of heaven, unless you are currently looking Jesus Christ in the face, beholding His glory without any hindrances, unless you have arrived to the gates, made it through the gates, and are comfortably dwelling in heaven with all the saints and with God Himself, your seed is not yet in the barn. Do not presume upon God's blessing or His kindness. God is not obligated to do anything for anyone. So don't take your foot off the gas until you get to heaven and not a moment sooner. Finally, our third point. Remember the past. Remember the past. In verse 15, Haggai says this. Consider from this day onward. Consider from this day onward. God wants this day, which for them was the 24th day of the ninth month, He wants it to serve as a sort of memory marker for His people. He wants this to be the day that the Israelites tell their children and their grandchildren about. Benjamin. There was a time when God's people were living in rebellion and disobedience against God, but then He spoke to us through the prophet Haggai. And we did what we don't almost ever do, and we actually listened, and we repented, and we turned back to God. And when we were walking in disobedience, God was cursing everything that we were doing. He was trying to wake us up to get us to snap out of it. And then as we began to walk in obedience, we were very anxious as a people. We were very uncertain about the future. Lord, will you relent of your discipline? What will this next harvest season be like? Will we survive as a people? We didn't know. We were uncertain. But then God spoke to us on the 24th day of the ninth month and He promised us that we would from that day forward recognize that things were better in our lives because we walked in obedience with God. As an interesting side note here, you should notice that prophets of God do not deal with in the obscure. Prophets of God do not deal in the obscure. Prophets of God do not make errors. Prophets speak on behalf of God. When a prophet speaks, he's saying, thus saith the Lord. And you don't say, thus saith the Lord, unless you know for a fact that what you're saying is actually what God has told you to say. You'll notice that true prophets like Haggai in today's text, do not shy away from objective evidence in their ministry. Haggai makes a prophecy and he says, hey guys, hey, everybody, attention, listen up. Write it down. 24th day of the ninth month. Everybody can look at this and verify it objectively. Which stands in contrast to many of today's so-called prophets who deal in the obscure, the vague impressions, the sorts of men who prophesy about common infirmities. Does anyone in the room have a back pain this morning? Well, yes, prophet, everyone in the room has back pain this morning. Look at the pews that we're sitting in. Or about so-and-so with such-and-such initials. Is there anyone in the room with an SJ here this morning who has a child? These prophets, supposed prophets, they peddle carnival tricks and magician's techniques. But when you ask for real proof, real evidence, real something that's objective, concrete, verifiable, they never have anything to offer. Friends, remember, God's prophets do not deal in the obscure. If someone comes to you and they claim to have a word from the Lord for you, I would encourage you to ask them for a chapter and verse number. Back to remembering. So here, God says that He is about to bless His people. But in verses 15 through 17, God says, before I do, I want you to remember how bad things can be when you walk in disobedience, when you forget about me. Look at verses 15 through 17 again. Now then, consider from this day onward Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? How was your life? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. That's how bad it was. Remember that. This point has three sub-points about remembrance. For the note-takers, I know you're extra excited. Get out a different color marker. Sub-point number one, remember the consequences. Some of us in this room may be at a similar crossroads in our lives as these Israelites. Some of us may be at the point in our lives where we're just beginning to live more for Jesus and less for ourselves. And we're on the verge of beginning to experience the rich blessings that come with a life of full obedience to God. And maybe the Lord is calling on us to remember how bad things were before that day, before the day that we turned to Him. I think about our brother Matt Mayfield, who was recently baptized. He's just now beginning his walk with the Lord. I don't know exactly what blessings are in store for Matt Mayfield. But I know that as he walks with the Lord and lives a life for the glory of Jesus Christ, there is an abundance of blessings waiting for Matt. Maybe not necessarily physically, but blessings nonetheless. And brother, I don't want you to forget how bad life was before you started following Jesus. I don't want you to forget about the anxiety and the depression and the frustration and the anger, the sense of despair, the brokenness, the, the feeling, the feeling like every part of your life was just touched with mildew and hail. And it just seemed like everything you touched was cursed and defiled. You just couldn't get any headway in life, in your relationships, in your finances, anything. Proverbs twenty six eleven says, "Like a dog that returns to his vomit, is a fool." Who repeats his folly. So, brother, do not return to your folly. Maybe you're here this morning and you're living in the midst of folly. Your life is showing that you're not really that concerned with the things of God. God and his presence has become something that just kind of exists in the back of your mind. You have your own bloated corpse. Have you considered the fact that your life, seeming like it's falling apart around you, might be God calling you to turn back to Him in full obedience? You don't have to be a brand new believer like Matt, or a believer who's kind of gone off track in order to apply this message to your life. Every single one of us in this room can think about a time before we knew the Lord and how bad things were. Well, hold on, what about, okay, Sean, I got saved when I was like seven. And maybe things were bad before that, but how bad can things be for a six-year-old? And if they were bad, it's not like I can remember it. So how does this apply to me? Well, if you got saved when you were seven, and you're 30 now, I'm sure that you've experienced a time where you began to walk away from the Lord, where your obedience began to wane, where His presence kind of took a back seat in your life how did that go for you? Did it go well? If I had to guess, I'd say probably not. Well, don't forget that. Don't forget how bad life can be when you're living life for yourself and you forget about Jesus. Many middle-class Americans remember a time when they were young and dumb and had no money. Times when they were cutting paper plates in half in college dorm rooms, when they opened the fridge and only saw mustard in a spoon. Why there was a spoon in the fridge, I don't know. Living in a one bedroom apartment in a bad neighborhood, you know, not being able to turn on the AC in the summer, not being able to turn on the heat in the winter, get some blankets. People who grew up without much money, people who remember the hard times, are the people who tend to do best when they actually finally do get some money. In the same way, the people who tend to thrive under the blessings of God are the people who remember how hard things were during the tough times in their walk with the Lord, in the times of discipline. Which leads us to our second subpoint. Remember the danger of blessings. Remember the danger of blessings. It seems like God is here giving his people a special warning because if his hand being against them didn't lead them to wake up, that's what he says at the end of verse 17, right? At the end of verse 17, it says, Yet you did not turn to me. I cursed everything that you touched. There was no wine. There was no grain. Everything that you, you were like the opposite of the Midas touch. Instead of everything you touch,ing turning to gold, it all turned to nothing, to junk. And yet you did not turn to me. And so here the Lord is saying, hey, if my hand of discipline against you didn't wake you up and get you to snap out of it, how much more danger will you be in now that my hand of blessing is about to be upon you? Success can be dangerous. Did you know that? An old Puritan once said that the most dangerous thing in the world for a Christian is not suffering, but success. You can consider the example of King Uzziah. His ministry began well. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we find out this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Seems like a pretty good ministry. Legacy carrying on the legacy of his father. The Lord is blessing him and prospering him. And do note that it is the Lord who prospered him. He defeated all of his enemies. God did that. But then the Chronicler tells us that Uzziah's fame spread and he became very strong. Very famous and very strong. That's dangerous. And all of this was under the blessing of God. And in verse 16 of the same chapter, we find out that, quote, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord. The writer of Proverbs understood how dangerous blessings could be. He said, give me neither riches nor poverty. And speaking on the reason why he didn't want the riches, the reason why he was afraid of the riches, he said, otherwise I may have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? when the Lord was leading His people into the promised land for the first time, He told them to be careful. We read it this morning. He said, you're going to eat. You're going to have plenty of wine to drink. You're going to have land. Everything's going to go fantastic for you. And then you're going to forget me. Success in blessings they're like so many other things in this world. They're good, but because of sin, they're dangerous. Because of the sin that's in our hearts. So, remember the dangers of blessings. Point number three. Sub-point number three. For point number three. Remember the irony. Remember the irony. The great irony of this account is that When these Israelites were pursuing these material blessings, they didn't get any. Verse 19 says, The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they yielded nothing. But when the people began to pursue God above all else, and they began to stop really caring about their material blessings, and all that kind of took a back seat to God, well, now all of a sudden, the blessings are coming. I remember when Amber and I first started hanging out for the first time after we uh, dated in high school. I hadn't seen her for years. We were hanging out just friends, and I kept saying, I don't want a wife. I just want to be single. I want to be like the Apostle Paul. A wife will just slow me down. How am I going to serve Jesus with a wife? And you know the rest of the story. Here we are. When I wasn't looking for a wife, the Lord blessed me with Now, what I'm doing this morning is describing an event to you. I'm saying that when the people stopped caring about physical, material blessings, they received them. The illustration from my own life is an example of when I wasn't caring about something and I cared about God, the Lord gave me the thing. But what I'm not doing is saying that this is how God always works. This is a general principle, not a hard and fast rule. I can just see some of the young single people in the congregation. All right, so what you're telling me i got to do is just stop caring about a wife. All right, I'm not going to care about a wife. Or I know how I can get rich. I'll just stop caring so much about money and start caring more about God. Well, that's not really how it works. And are you really not thinking about those things when you try to strategize like that? But I do think that there is a principle here. I think the same principle comes from Matthew 6, which... We read earlier in the service. In Matthew 6, Jesus spends six verses talking about God's people being anxious for their basic provisions, their food, their shelter, their clothing. And then in verse 31, He says, don't be anxious. It's a command. Do not be anxious. Well, thanks, Jesus. You know, it's really hard. How do I not be anxious? Well, He says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all these other things will be added to you. God is saying, take all that anxious energy, all that mental and spiritual energy that you're investing in worrying about your basic physical provisions and spend it being enraptured with God and pursuing God and pursuing God's kingdom. And then just trust that everything else will be taken care of. God is saying the same thing to us this morning, brothers and sisters if we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory above all else, and if we dedicate all of our time, talent, treasure, and energy into finishing His mission, I think we can just trust that everything else will be taken care of. I think that's what's happening in today's text. It's not like these people are about to receive superabundance. It's not like they're about to be, you know, decked out in the finest royal robes, driving, you know, Murcielagos. These people wanted 50 uh, measures of something, and they only had 20. What's likely going to happen is that the people will go search out 50, and they'll probably have 50. In the same way, brothers and sisters, when God provides for us, He does not promise to give us an overabundance. Every person in this room, when won the spiritual lottery by living in America. We all have a super abundance. But that's not promised to us. Remember the prophet Elijah, whom the Lord loved very much. When he was on a mission for God, how did God provide for him? Well, he brought him some meat in the mouth of a raven. Not exactly the super abundance you might hope God would bring to his chosen servant. I think about the life of this church the mission that God calls us to to be honest I look at other churches I look at the resources that they have I was recently on a phone call with a bunch of different pastors from all over the country and they were talking about they just got this deed of land and they have so much money they guess they're just going to have to hire another pastor and build in renovations and and it wasn't good for my heart but this is good for my heart. This reminder that if we as a church, if we just seek the Lord above all else, we can trust that we'll be taken care of. We may not have the latest and greatest whatever. We may not have the money to hire the guy when we want to hire him. We may not be able to get Grant some of the sound equipment update he needs. But don't we have enough? With this pew, with these pews in this building with each other? Don't we have enough? Ultimately, we can be content because we know that God's fullest promise of blessing is not a promise of more wine or more barley or more pomegranates or more olives or whatever our modern version of those things may be. Our ultimate promise is the promise of spiritual blessings. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that God has already, He has already blessed us with all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And it says that He did that even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses in our transgressions. What do we deserve? Curses. What do we get? blessings? Here in today's text, the Israelites walk in obedience and God blesses them. But Jesus, the ultimate, final Israel, came. And He walked in perfect obedience while He was here on this earth. But He did not receive the blessings of the Father. He got the curses. The curses that we deserve. He was punished for our iniquities. He was condemned for our transgressions. But that's not all. You see, the blessings that Jesus should have received for living in full obedience to God the Father while he was here on this earth, all of those rich blessings that he rightly deserved, they're given to us if we are in Jesus Christ. This is called the great exchange. Our sins were laid upon Jesus Christ's shoulders, and He took the curse of our covenant unfaithfulness, the curse of our disobedience, on His back. And we, a disobedient, unfaithful people who deserve nothing but curses, we repent of our sins, and when we trust in Christ, we receive all the blessings that only Jesus rightly deserves. Paul says it this way, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin. On our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our sin, we take his righteousness. The next time you have a question about whether or not God is being fair to you, I want you to remember this teaching in this verse. There is nothing fair about this at all, and yet we are the recipients of this mercy. Today's text kind of ends hanging in the balance. Jesus says, excuse me, well, Jesus kind of says, but the Lord speaking through the prophet Haggai says, the seed is not yet in the barn. So what will the Israelites do? There's a long time between the seed sowing and the harvest. Will the people of God walk in obedience? and find when they go out to the olive trees and to the vineyards and to the fields will they find the abundance of blessing or will they find another curse in light of their further disobedience it seems wise for us to ask ourselves the same question our seed is not yet in the barn and a choice remains before us so how will we live And what will we receive? Let's pray. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot maintain our spiritual fervency without your Holy Spirit empowering us. And so as we consider our past and as we try to be faithful in the future and as we try to hope in the promises that are to come, we pray that you will give us all that we need to be faithful right here, right now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Please stand with. Me.